Colossians chapter 1. It's my favorite passage probably in all of Scripture. I'm always hesitant to say that. And if you can't tell the march of the kiddos out of here, it's time for Kingdom Kids, and you all are more than welcome to go. You'll, you'll uh, be back in here during the last song this morning. I missed a few important announcements when I, I got up, and I'm just going to share those with you before we get into the text. The first of those, if you remember last week, uh, Amy shared the um, story of God, God calling her to the Middle East, and she'll be, uh, we'll be commissioning her out next Sunday morning. In the meantime... She has some furniture that she needs to get in a moving truck this afternoon. So if there are two to three of you, if there are two to three of you who would be available about 2.30 today, what I need you to do is, Amy's parents are right back here, just raise your hands if you don't mind. See them or see me. And then together, hopefully, we'll, we'll get those two or three people where they need to be this afternoon. She would be greatly appreciative of that extra help. And... Um, Another uh, just announcement. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna spoil the surprise. But after we sing the last song today, um, we have just a, a just a, a short presentation on what God is doing across uh, the ocean uh, in Germany. So I'm gonna let I'll let Sophie and her her brother-in-law, who you'll meet in just a few minutes after the to the sermon today. So stick around after that. I'll remind you all again not to rush away. Um, but it'll be before closing prayer. So if you do, you're you'll be a, a bad Christian or something if you leave before um, the closing prayer. Well, for the next four weeks, we're asking a question that has been asked since the song was written in the 19th century, What Child Is This? Interestingly, the way that that song responds in, in the question, What Child Is This? As you, as you imagine looking upon a, a baby in a manger, um, never imagining the response. And that song tells us, it says, This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. We all know that song, or most of us do, I imagine. Advent is a season where we answer that question together, but over the next four weeks, we're answering that question. Not only is this Christ the King, but what kind of king is this, right? And so we're going to look at four aspects of Christ's kingship as we think about uh, the expectation of his return. And, and today, obviously, is the divine king, the king who is God. Uh, next week, Matt is going to examine the priestly king, the king who is, who is the great high priest. Uh, I'm going to come back around in a couple weeks, and we're going to look at the joyful king, leaning in on the joy of, of Christ's kingship, the joy that he has and experiences in being king. And Trenton, um, y'all are going to clap all Sunday long when he preaches on the 18th on what is maybe my favorite aspect the warrior king, the warrior king. So we are examining all four of these from different perspectives in hopes that we have a fuller and more worshipful posture before Jesus. Um, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Every year I feel like I almost have to take a sledgehammer to the cultural construct of what we've made of Jesus uh, and really look at what Scripture says and what he says about himself. So we're going to start right out of the gate, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. I'm going to pray. We'll read through it. This is my favorite text in all of Scripture um, for a number of reasons. So, so Father, uh, we acknowledge that when we come to you as Father, we come through the Son who is Christ. But, um, Lord, I acknowledge right now as, as we talk about this morning, this is not just a, a servant who's standing by. Um, our Christ is our Lord, our Savior. I pray he is that for all of us in this space. Um, but he is our King. And, and we owe um, not only a debt of gratitude, not only words, but we owe our very lives to our King. 
And so, Lord, whatever our posture is this morning, whether it's one of um, per- perhaps we hold on and we reserve uh, possessions and th- time for ourselves, Lord, we want to we pour out our lives for our King. We believe in the cause of our King, and we believe that when the, when the King calls us to arms and says to march, that there are no questions. We simply say, okay. And so a, a life marked by obedience uh, to our King, that's, that's what we're after. We know you'll return, and we know what that scene looks like a little bit. Um, and so, Lord, let us be found faithful, faithful to our King. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Colossians, before we read 15 through 23, which is the passage, you need to understand uh, Paul is doing something very similar as he does in every letter, he is offering greetings, and in verse three and continuing, he he begins to offer thanksgiving for the for the Christians, uh, the Colossian Christians, and he makes this statement in verses thirteen and fourteen. He says, "Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption." the forgiveness of sins. And so it's almost as in this moment, Paul brings up Jesus and he can't help but to then sing, right? So the words he quotes in verses 15 through 20 are an ancient hymn of the early church. So he is, he is, he is reciting for them a hymn that would have been well known to the hearers. And now the scholars debate, you know, what was a verse, where were the verse, it doesn't, but they all scholars agree that what we're reading in verses 15 through 20 would be a hymn of the early church. And so this is the type of stuff that kids would have heard repeated in the early church. And so he's talking about Jesus. He can't help but to sing, but he also takes this moment and he says, I need to clarify the Christology, which is the fancy nickel word for what they think about Jesus. I need to clarify what they think and believe about Jesus because what they believe about Jesus is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Right, Just because you say the name Jesus and you say you believe in the name Jesus does not mean that you know or believe in the true Jesus. And so what a powerful clarification he gives. Who is this king or what child is this? Verse 15 and following says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, we could probably spend months just on this passage. And so he says this, he recites the hymn, and in response to the hymn, he says, you have a response yourselves. And you, verse 21, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, there's that word hope, the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I, I didn't have a practice of, um, I wouldn't even say regular Bible reading or regular Bible intake until my early 20s, um, which is another way of saying I didn't read the Bible. That's a churchy way of saying it. I didn't have a discipline of Bible reading. Um, so I, I, I had one, I possessed one, I owned one. It's immaculate condition. Um, pages are crisp. And so my understanding of Jesus was really what culture had given me. And what I had, the little bit that I had extracted from a sermon on Christmas Eve or Christmas or Easter, uh, sometimes in Sunday school uh, when I was young. Um, but I really had an image of Jesus that I said I, I try to take up, uh, try to break down every single year at this time because most of our cultural understandings of Jesus are, are very small and weak, um, very incomplete. I had an incomplete view of Jesus. Uh, I think most of the world has an incomplete view of Jesus. Uh, the, the, the challenge here, though, is, is can an incomplete Jesus, is an incomplete view of Jesus or a lesser than Lord view of Jesus sufficient for salvation? Think about what I'm asking here. If you just have an idea of who Jesus is and you pray to this idea who you believe Jesus to be, are you praying to the true person of Christ? I will say that I don't think it's possible for a man to have a Savior and not a Lord. I don't think it's possible to say, Jesus, I want you to take care of my eternal destiny, but the Lordship part I'm going to hold on to for a little while. I'm going to be my own Lord. I just need you to be my Savior. I don't think that's a biblical view of Jesus. And just imagine applying the way that we talk about Jesus to other parts of our life. Just imagine getting excited about learning to ski. You're going to go get ski lessons today, and so you rent all the stuff you need, the, 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 the boots and the poles and the skis, and you don't have any coats, so you've got to rent the coat and the cold weather gear. And now because we're very safety conscious, you rent the ski helmet now because everyone wears ski helmets now. And you, you rent the whole thing, and you go out on the slopes, and you meet your instructor, and you're excited to meet them. And he takes you over to the chairlift, and he says, all right, the first lesson is how to get on the chairlift. And you're so pumped and excited, and you get on the chairlift, and you're the best. I mean, you're, you're just like a pro. And you're at the chairlift, and about halfway up, you realize, I don't know how to get off the chairlift, and much less, I don't know how to ski down the rest of the mountain, because all he told me was how to get on the chairlift. Like, that's obviously incomplete. So you're obviously going back and saying, hey, I need my money back or something, because you didn't teach me how to ski. You just taught me how to get on the chairlift. Or just imagine, like me, I think about going to my boys and saying, oh, we're going to read a good night. We're going to read a nighttime story. And we, so we, we, get up, we get everything ready, teeth brushed. Everybody's ready for bed. We get in bed. And I read the first sentence. I'm like, well, that was a good story. Let me close it now and go to bed. Like, it's just incomplete. It leaves you wanting more. You realize that what you have is not complete. The real Jesus the full Jesus. And that's, that's what Paul's getting at early in his letter, because everything that follows depends upon his hearer, his audience, and that being you and the Colossians originally, understanding 
the sovereignty and the power and the holiness and the majesty of Jesus. Not just a savior, not just a gentle and lowly servant, but a high and mighty king. A king that demands your life. A king that demands your loyalty. A king that pays your ransom in order to receive your joyful obedience for the rest of eternity. Not a king who says, please, just call me into your heart and live your life as though nothing changed. No king simply says, recite a prayer, chant my name, and you'll be good to go. No, a king says, I will be your king and you will be my people. Therefore, you will trust me when I call. You will obey me when I lead. This passage changed my life because it demonstrated for the first time that Jesus Jesus wasn't just weak and lowly. That Jesus was far greater than a helpless babe in a manger somewhere 2,000 years ago. See, the small Jesus that many of us have received and the small Jesus that many of us believe, we can relegate him to the the places outside of our life when he's inconvenient. Because he's just this weak, loving Jesus who who, who lets you do and, and loves you no matter what, which are true things. But see, in the absence of his kingship and his sovereignty and his authority, it's not only misleading, it's damning. That's the challenge. This changed my life. Let me just say this as we, as we look at four aspects of the divine king in this passage. Let me just, I want you to hear me say this very clearly. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 is often quickly said. But it takes a lifetime, I think, to truly comprehend. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we say that, we almost say, well, as long as you do that, you're good. Like almost trying to to frame salvation as simply as possible. But what is it to confess someone as Lord? It is to submit and surrender your will to another. It is to say, I had my plans and now I lay them at the altar of my king and give my life to the king's service. So who is this king and is he worthy of that? That's, that's what you got to figure out. The king who creates is the first aspect of his divinity that I want to draw on because that's clearly what Paul wants to draw on. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is, is, is not only an instrument in creation, he is the object and purpose of creation. Why is there creation? So that people may know Jesus. It's fascinating when we think about creation. We often, and rightly so, think of God the Father being present in creation. And uh, Genesis 1, 26, in fact, in the creation narrative, it is so fascinating, the Trinitarian language that is used, let us, the Bible says, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So 
There's this evidence when you're reading it. Obviously, there's more than just the Father there. Who could that be but the Son and the Spirit? But Jesus alludes to this as well. I I know that if we have Jehovah's Witnesses friends and Mormon friends probably in our lives, and they don't love these verses because they don't love the idea that Christ is divine. But in John 17, as Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The entire point of this Colossians 1 passage is to demonstrate that Christ is preeminent. The word firstborn in this notion has no ties in its language, original or otherwise, to indicate that Christ is created. He was and is and is to come. If that wasn't clear enough, John in his own gospel in the very first verse of the first chapter wants you to understand that John 1.1 is inextricably connected to Genesis 1.1. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that doesn't say anything about Jesus. Verse 14 does, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word was God. See, Jesus was not made. He was not in a holding cell. He was not working, you know, outside of creation. Creation itself is what Paul's getting at, is Christ's workmanship. One commentator relating all of this together in creation says that, of course, the Father has a significant relation to creation, but the Son, Jesus, actually is the one who brings the plans into existence. It's through His creative power the created order exists. Jesus is, in a sense, the foreman of the construction and the Spirit who finally, He does the actual work of applying the plans in a hands-on relationship to creation. Creation was Jesus' work. It was His sovereign possession. That's what Paul's getting at. Every square inch of creation belongs to Jesus. It was his work. It was his handiwork, the fashion work of his hands. Jesus is the goal of creation. Everything exists to display his glory. Everything. The mountains, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, culture, the arts, science, your life was created to demonstrate Christ's glory. He owns it all. It's both helpful here and when I get to the next point to think of an artist who is creating a sculpture. Now, the artist who creates a sculpture envisions this in his mind beforehand, or her mind, thinks about what the, the end product will look like and, and what it is illustrating and demonstrating. And, and they have a choice. They, they could try to communicate that vision to someone else and probably get a different outcome, but it wouldn't be the vision they had. So what the artist does, they build the proportions, the perspectives, the figures, and what they want to emphasize from that statue. And then the artist constructs that statue as they alone can see it. Finally, when that work is on display before others to see, the, art, the people admire the finished work and they think of who? Not only the art, but if they're rightly ordered, they think of the artist who imagined it, planned it, and accomplished the work of beauty itself. As long as that sculpture stands, 
people remember and appreciate the artist. In the same way, Jesus is the central point of creation. That's what Paul's after. Nothing in all of creation exists that is not designed and given by God to see Jesus. So you need to understand this, that Jesus wasn't on standby in the beginning. He wasn't kind of hanging out in the back room waiting for the cross or in the manger perhaps even earlier in life. He was not waiting. He was not passive. He was fully present and sovereign and active, and creation exploded forth from nothing in order to display the magnificent riches of Jesus. And that's every square inch of it. I throw up the Abraham Kuyper quote as one of my favorite quotes. Again, the dude doesn't get enough props or love in modern theology. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Including the blood in your body and the air in your lungs, it belongs to Jesus whether you acknowledge it or not. So what happens when, when the sculpture that the artist has envisioned, what happens when, when the weather of years of the, the, uh, of the time-tested elements fall on the statue or when riots emerge in the city and the statue is knocked off its foundation and falls to the ground and breaks? Who is better prepared, better equipped, or more passionate, not only to, to correct the art and to redeem what has been broken, but to restore it to a place that may even be better than its original state. And that's Paul's next point. This is the divine king who not only creates, but redeems what has been lost and broken. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is so connected to creation, so tied up within it, that he uses his full authority as divine king, not only to create, but to redeem what has been lost. This is why Jesus is so captivated by all of creation being redeemed, all of it to rightly demonstrate his authority. Whatever sin has touched, grace must touch all the more. And Jesus is consumed with this mission. This is a joy for him, brothers and sisters. Like it is his life's, it is now his eternal mission to redeem what has been broken in the fall. He created it, it was for him, and it got messed up. And that is, and so now it's time to redeem and to fix it. And this is a joyful work for Jesus. I, I want you to hear these words. Like all of creation, not only the human soul, not only, not only brokenness across the world and famine and poverty, but hurricanes and volcanoes and that which destroys the earth itself. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Paul writes these words, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing for the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know what's wrong with the world? This is what's wrong with the world. If you're getting frustrated by endless news cycle of bad news, remember Romans 8. If you're wondering what in the world is going on, remember Romans 8. When the environmentalists come knocking on your door, crying, chicken little, remember Romans 8. This is not the way it is supposed to be, brothers and sisters. 
Why are we constantly surprised by bad news when we know that bad news is a given? Romans 8 tells us that creation itself is groaning. It, is, it has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of us. And Christ is redeeming every square inch of his creation. He is, he is redeeming every square inch of his creation, including you. And that's not a begrudging task for him. This is, not, this is not one of those situations, oh my goodness, uh, i got to deal with Seth the sinner who wants to call upon me as King of kings and Lord of lords. No, this is a joy for Jesus. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us that Jesus went to the cross who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews 12 2. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him the joy to sit at the right hand of the throne of God and to see the effectiveness, the work of His redemptive work on the cross come to fruition. It is a joy for Jesus to see creation redeemed. It is a joy for Him to see you redeemed. And your salvation does not happen in a silo. Your salvation is not off by itself. This whole idea that when we're saved, it's, we go off to this corner and we don't tell a lot of people. Don't you understand that your salvation is part of an eternal narrative that is unfolding right before our eyes on earth? Like Your salvation, your redemption in Christ is part of this grand cosmic narrative where Christ the King is saying, it's all mine and I will take it back. When you are saved, when you call out the name of Jesus, like this whole like this whole quiet salvation stuff, I don't know what it's about, but when you are saved, the king of creation who created you and all of this was to display him so that you might see the mountains and not say, wow, that's a beautiful mountain, but wow, that is a glorious savior. That is a part, your salvation is a part of Christ bringing all things back into himself. And so before you keep reading, he might say in Colossians, like, you need to get this about Jesus. The third aspect of his divine kingship is the one who shows us the Father. He shows us God. He is God. He makes this point twice in this passage, verses 15 and 19. He wants us to know that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Literally, the image, he is a manifestation of God. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Old Testament is a story of God continually telling them why his fullness could not dwell amongst them or they could not be in his presence. Are you satisfied with, with Jesus? I mean, this is the Philip's issue. Philip in John 14 says, Jesus, we really want to see the Father. And Jesus said to him, like, have I been with you this long, dude, and you still don't know me, Philip? This, this is very encouraging as a pastor in the same local church for more than a decade to know that even Jesus was misunderstood. It's like, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Like, what are you expecting the Father to be? Jesus brings all, every time we speak of God's glory, majesty, power, supremacy, love, wrath, justice, mercy, righteous indignation, holiness, every time we talk about God, we are ascribing those things or ought to be ascribing those things to Jesus as well. 
as lowly as Jesus became, putting on flesh and putting himself to the cross, he never forsook or gave away his divinity. And here's the bottom line. You can't know God the Father without knowing the Son. Most people in the world will say they believe in God. I can ask most people, even in the church, who may be outside of religion, one of the clearest signs in my mind when I'm talking to um, a Christian about salvation is how, how do you, how is one saved? And they say, well, you need to know God. Well, how do you know God? You see, you can't even come to the threshold of God's door on your own power, by the way. So how are you going to know this God and you can't even get in his house? You can't sit at his table. You can't commune with him, and it's not his fault. Like, God cannot help his holiness, just like he can't help your sinfulness. So how are you going to know this God who's sitting inside of the banquet table if you can't even walk through the door? You're not, is the answer. Only through Christ. And this is not just like a, a sidebar guy. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who welcomes you into the Father's presence. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And the last element that I want to draw on and I want to draw on big time, not only is this divine King who is certainly all these things be true, but this is the one who saves, who uses all of his power and authority to save you and me. Look at, look at his response. <clears throat> um, so he, he lays out this hymn for them and, and essentially recites the hymn, and then what does he say? You, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, even you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, if you remain in the faith, there is an implication here that you can start in the faith, um, fall out of the faith, but I think if you look consistently with Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a great example. Faith is not something you do, by the way. Faith is not something you're like, man, I got to go today and get more faith. I got to stop by Dollar General and get some cough medicine and faith. It's a gift from God. Faith in itself is a gift from God. And so to have more faith is not something you generate or go mine up. So what's happening here most likely is a true faith is a persevering faith. But the thing I really want to draw on is what he says first. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You notice how that's not exactly neutrality or neutral language? So if I hear out of your mouth, or if I say it, I was never that bad. I just recognized that I needed Jesus. The Bible doesn't have a category for you. Did you know that? There's no category for good people because there's no such thing. There's no category for you. 
And I think the challenge is if you recognize, if you believe that you are kind of neutral and just good and Jesus just kind of like got you over the finish line, then you don't recognize what, what you were. And my question is, do you now know who you are? Because the Bible uses very clear language. The reason that he lifts up the kingship and sovereignty of Jesus is to demonstrate the lowliness of man. There is no neutrality. If you are outside of the king's will, listen, just look at human history. How have enemies of kings fared? Not, Not very well, have they? And what he's saying is, if you're not a subject of the king, a follower of the king, you're an enemy of the king. Like there's no neutral zone. You weren't just good or decent or okay. You were hostile to God. Why? Because the God of your life was yourself. And God, you were alienated. You were far off from God. You, like, like your testimony ought never to begin. I was okay. No, 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 you were, you were alienated. You were far off from the holiness of God. If you think that you get any closer, you have an elevated view of yourself, brothers or sisters. No, 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 you weren't just okay. You weren't just, it's, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with earthly behavior. I'm not talking about behavior here. Behavior, I don't care. I'm talking about the heart, the posture of your heart. Without, when you are, you are either a follower, you are a subject of the king, or you are hostile to the king. And you've got to get this to get the fullness of the gospel. The reason I'm saying all this isn't just so you say, oh, I'm just so miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it so that you recognize the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love for you. The height to which the king of kings and lord of lords traveled to pull you out of the pit. Because if he just kind of like, like had to do this, oh, you're not that bad, I got you here. No, he gave his life on the cross. And so, so he doesn't just give his life for just, eh, am I kind of a bad person, kind of a good person. He gave his life for those who were his enemies. That's the power of the gospel. He didn't just give his life for all right people. He gave his life for enemies, for aliens, for those outside, those, those outside the presence is, is, is the idea. And he saves. And he's doing it to all of creation. Because Jesus is so consumed by this idea to leave any aspect of creation in the grasp of sin would allow sin to triumph over grace, and Jesus will not allow sin to triumph over grace. Grace will win. He already owns everything before you. Like, I, if I could just say this as I think about, as I, as I land this, this, I mean, how do you even land this plane? It's massive. So, so as, I, as I say this, I just need you to know this morning, no matter of where your position is in your heart and your mind, I just need you to understand that Jesus already owns everything of yours. like to place and reframe the way we think. We're talking about Christmas gifts already, I'm sure, many of us. Um, He already owns it all. He owns the breath that's going in and out of my lungs right now. He owns the blood that's pumping through my body. He owns this carpet, that road. He owns the sky, the clouds. He owns it all already. He owns, he owns, he has rightful possession over you. The king takes what the king wants. And thank God he does it mercifully. But like, what, what will it take for us to, 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 to reframe the way that we see Jesus and see all of creation pointing to him, but not only that, to see him as a rightful king who has, the, who has the authority and the sovereignty and the responsibility and the holiness and the ability to call us and demand our obedience.
Like, why is it always that Jesus is the one like, that gets to wait in all of life? I really, like, like, we were talking about this this week. Nobody, now just imagine going for, before an earthly king. Like, you're, just imagine being before an earthly king, and he calls, you, he calls you to his chambers, and he's sitting in his throne, and he sits down, and he says, all right, I need you to, I need you to give all your land to me. And you say, yeah, I really need to, uh, but I got this thing coming up. So I won't be able to do that for a few more weeks till my schedule frees up. You know, it's real busy. It's real busy right now. Just got a lot. That's junk. Ain't none of y'all doing that. You're going to say, yes, my king. Especially a good king. One you can trust to do better with your land than yourself. But all y'all sitting around here saying, king, I'll do that. I'll get to it. I know I should. I know I should. I know I should. But you're not treating him like a king. You're treating him like he's in a manger and you can stuff him away in the closet when you don't want to hear him cry. And Paul goes to fix this theology real quick at the beginning of this letter. He says, this this ain't a king you say no to. And this ain't a king you say maybe to. This is a good and rightful king who already has possession, rightful possession over everything you own and everything in all creation. So the best you can do is recognize it and trust him with it. Close with these words from an old preacher named S.M. Lockridge who tries his best to describe Jesus in literally thousands of words and can't do it. And I'm not going to read them all. But if I had some organ music playing, it'd make it real dramatic. But just listen to some of these things as he's trying to describe the seven-way king. He just says his office is manifold, his promise is sure, his life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable incomprehensible, invincible, irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Their witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree and Herod couldn't kill him and death couldn't handle him and the grave could not hold him. But he says, that's my king and he always has been and he always will be. To know God, come before this king. Give your life to this king. He's worthy of it. He owns everything already. It's rightfully his and he's going to redeem every bit of it. The question is, is will he redeem you? Will he take you? Will he claim you? Are you his child today? Are you a subject, a joyful subject of the king of kings and lord of lords? Proclaim this in all of heaven because this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of which Paul became a minister. This is the power of the church to proclaim as he refers to in this passage. This is the only thing that we must do for the rest of our days is proclaim the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the divine King, the child who has come and now rules and reigns in heaven. Let us pray. Father, I recognize that you are, um, that, that there are, there's much about you that is indescribable. There's much about you that, that cannot be explained and certainly not contained. But what I ask for in this moment, Lord, is that each one of us in this room recognize that there is, that you are King, whether or not we acknowledge that or not. 
whether or not we actually live our lives in accordance with the truth that you are king, whether or not the, the, the generosity and the, and the obedience of our hearts flows towards a king or someone we, we view as lesser. Lord, what I'm asking you to do is in your mercy and grace as king is to call out those who are your children and call them to repent of those places they're holding back from their king. They're reserving or delaying obedience, Lord, or not trusting you. Lord, you're a king who can be trusted. You are a, you are a king who cannot do but good. And so, Lord, um, I, I pray that you would change and convict hearts even in this space, those who may have never called upon the name of Jesus, but also those who maybe have, but maybe called on a lesser view of Jesus. May we cry out to our king, the King of Kings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.